0: Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm John Harris. I'm joined today with Rod Martin. Rod Martin uh, is one of the founders of PayPal, runs the Martin Organization, on the steering committee for the Conservative Baptist Network, and uh, is on the executive committee for the Southern Baptist Convention. And he's going to talk to us a little bit today about uh, what's going on in the SBC and maybe why you should consider, if you're a Southern Baptist, staying in the denomination. So, Rod, thank you so much for joining me. It's an honor
1: it's good to be here and
0: uh very grateful for your job. yeah well i, I appreciate it so much the uh, uh hard work the effort i mean you're a busy guy and you have dedicated yourself uh to the southern baptist convention the politics of it uh you post a lot on social media i know that that's the iceberg i'm sure you're doing so much more behind the scenes and i think some people wonder uh why would you want to beat your head against a board you know <laughs> all the time, but this is something yeah. you care about, and, and I know it can be stressful and discouraging, but I, I just would like to hear you, and I think everyone would like to hear you talk about why this matters so much to you. Well, it does
1: matter uh, very, very much, and, and I can summarize that pretty easily in just pointing out that we have six seminaries that collectively educate a third of the seminary students in North America. And uh, that's way more than just Southern Baptists. We have 50,000 churches, give or take. There are 550,000 churches in America. So you do the math, a third of the seminarians coming through our six denominational seminaries means we're affecting a lot more than just us. And if you want those, all those pastors, all those music ministers, all those different people to be teaching things that you don't agree with in all of those different denominations, then you know, walk away. But if if it matters that we we shore that up, the only way you do that is is you you fight for the SBC, and not only that, but of course we have the largest missionary force in evangelical Christendom. That matters. We don't want a bunch of people converted in India or wherever to critical race theory. That's a horrifying thought. We, it's a false gospel. It is, it is antithetical to the gospel. The idea that we are merely uh, a group of, of identity groups that we are defined by our skin color, that we are, that we are nothing more than what some ideologue tells us we are is, is so completely alien to the idea that, that the father adopts us through the redemptive work of Christ and that we are actually brothers and sisters of Christ through adoption, that we are all one in him. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. That is, that is a message of reconciliation. What they call racial reconciliation is the exact opposite. So, so these things matter and, and Baptists are not Anglicans. Baptists are not Catholics. Baptists are not any of the denominations that have some kind of hierarchy that is impenetrable to the, the person in the pew. We actually have a system in which, however difficult it may be to get people to work it, all you have to do in Southern Baptist life to make a difference is show up in sufficient numbers at one meeting a year. Mm-hmm. And if we do, and by the way, this year, we can, if we had flipped 300 votes, we would have won. <laughs> so out of 15,000, we were short about 300 votes all in. It, it was a 500-vote margin. So, of course, if you take 300 from them you know, and, and put them on our cap, you, you flipped it around. Mike Stone would be president, and we would be appointing very different trustees of all our boards over the next year or two. So we were extremely close. We had record turnout, largest turnout in 25 years and, and that's an incredibly good sign. A lot of those people were our people. And uh, if, if we just pursue that relentlessly, as our prior generations did in the 80s, we demonstrated then, and we can easily demonstrate now, I believe, that the Baptist in the pew actually has the final say on all of these matters. It's just a matter of, will he or she actually show up at one meeting each year, And it's really not that complicated. It's just a lot of work. So you said, you know, I'm doing a lot of things off social media. You may rest assured that's true. And uh, we, we put a lot into this. But to be fair, this was one year of organizing, largely dominated by a pandemic. And we almost, almost beat the entire United Denominational Machinery against us. Uh, just wait to see what's coming.
0: Well, I, I, I appreciate the optimism uh, that you have in that. I think a lot of people would wonder, and I know my I, I'm included in this, is there a point of no return? Is there a point you say, okay, look, the, the denomination is too far gone. Uh, we, we need to just start something else. We need to leave because I, I don't know exactly where maybe the disagreement is or the um, w- why we think differently on this. But I think maybe exploring that point might help people clarify their views. So, so is there ever a point that Rod Martin says, all right, guys, let, let's, you know, let it go the way it's going and we're going to go do something else.
1: Well, I, Cody asked me that on Facebook the other day and I was, I was tied up with 14 other things and I didn't answer him there, but I'll just answer him here on your show. (laughs) Um, That's actually pretty straightforward this is lost beyond all repair at the point that they drive enough conservative churches out of the denomination to not be able to affect the outcome at the annual meeting. I mean, that's honestly the answer. This is purely a turnout operation. Look, they're trying to claim in one way or another that Southern Baptists are woke that they, they are embracing critical race theory and all these nutty things excuse me, no, have you seen the vote count in November of last year? I mean, Baptists voted about something between 86 and 90% for Donald Trump. I mean, they are not woke. There is nothing woke about the average Southern Baptist. So if they will just find it within themselves to steward the, by the way, $30 billion worth of assets that the Lord handed them, cities they did not build, fields they did not till, if they will just take care of that which was given to them by prior generations by the Lord, then this is a no-brainer. I mean, that room should be overwhelmingly conservative. And I can tell you why it isn't always. I mean, there are obviously people on the other side of this, who who really see things differently, and they organize too. There are denominational leaders who who turn out people, sometimes using cooperative program dollars, according to the Washington Post, to turn out people for a specific candidate who, maybe that was an ideological move, maybe that was just he was their friend. You can tell me, but it seems to me that there's an awful lot of of built-in resistance, then this was true in the 80s also, that we have to overcome. But if more Baptists, and and let me define that, in an average year, 7.2% of our churches send even one messenger to the annual meeting. That's not 72%, 7.2%. So if, if you could even get to 14% or 20%, that room gets radically more representative of the vast majority, and I mean overwhelming majority of Southern Baptists. Now, if they drive out a bunch of conservative churches, that number starts changing dramatically to the left, and the built-in advantage that they have organizationally starts being more and more dominant. And you could reach a point where it's just impossible and it's not worth the effort. But this is not Harvard. If we were trying to take back Harvard, we have no mechanism by which you or I could ever be appointed to the Board of Trustees of Harvard University. And as a practical matter, the same thing is true of Baylor University, which used to belong to the Baptist General Convention of Texas and through great skullduggery, uh, the evil Herb Reynolds, uh, now now rotting in hell, I'm sure, uh, stole $4.2 billion of church property, Baylor University plus the Baylor Health System from the Baptist General Convention of Texas with the full complicity of the liberals then leading the BGCT. And, you know, that's just wickedness. It's just wickedness. And if Baptists had stood up at the BGCT at the time, they could have saved those assets that were paid for by the little old lady on the next to the last pew writing out a tithe check in her shaky hand out of her social security and putting it in the plate each week. But instead, they were complicit because they didn't like Paul Pressler and they didn't like Paige Patterson and they didn't like conservatives and they wanted Baylor to go away and do its own thing. So now Baylor is celebrating gay pride and doing all the things that we said that it would do back in the day, and and it's lost to us. Well, we should not lose all of these other institutions that will go on being powerful institutions, will go on educating preachers, will go on sending missionaries, but for a completely different agenda than that of New Testament Christianity.
0: I think that's a compelling case. It's... Uh no one wants to lose all those assets and all, all the mechanisms that have been passed down uh, for, for people who save, like you said, and fought for these things over a period of time. The thing that I think um, concerns a lot of conservatives right now is th- this has been caught kind of um, I, I've heard some people say it's been caught a little late, but as we wait for the next convention, uh, these seminaries are continuing to churn out a students who are going to sympathize more with the social justice movement, and the churches who remain in the SBC uh, continue to support or fund these institutions in general. Now, I, I understand there's a way to try to not support them as much. Could you speak to that? Is there a way to try to r- remain influential if someone cares about that, but also not fund this machine that hates what you stand for and what the Bible teaches?
1: Well, I'm a strong advocate of the cooperative program. I think it's one of the greatest things that the church has ever come up with. It's obviously not inspired by God in the way that, that, uh, you know, the, the new Testament is, but it is nevertheless, um, one of the better inventions of man. And we're coming up on the hundredth anniversary of the cooperative program. And I, I would never suggest that people shouldn't give through the cooperative program, but if Someone were compelled through conscience, for instance, to defund the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which just had one of its staffers argue against the strongest anti-abortion resolution the SBC has ever passed, and you know, was completely AWOL in the fight for these churches in Alberta that are getting just shut down and their pastors arrested, all these things. If somebody felt compelled morally to not fund the ERLC, it's actually pretty easy. You can designate giving. And it used to be that you couldn't have messengers if you did that. But uh, in the infinite wisdom of Ronnie Floyd and the Great Commission Resurgence Task Force a decade ago, they redefined uh, all of our giving in our documents. I reread the Constitution last night. And sure enough, if you are, if your church is giving to convention ministries, maybe just Lottie Moon Christmas offering to support the International Mission Board, which is a wonderful thing to do. If you were to just give that way, or you were to send checks uh, to the executive committee for distribution to everybody but the ERLC, or everybody but whoever, that actually all counts toward your Great Commission giving. That's a defined term. And you're still entitled to be represented and involved. So um, I think that, uh, and by the way, full disclosure, I voted for GCR. I really regret that in retrospect. It was every bit as bad as everybody said it would be. Um, But nevertheless, it is um, working out that I think people realize that GCR was a mistake, but Mm. One of the mistakes, I think that it made was loosening exactly that definition in a way that a lot of people who in good conscience, can't support some of these things now can utilize to their own benefit. They can still be very involved as Southern Baptists without funding things they can't agree with. And so, yes, I'm not encouraging that, but I'm I can easily map out how you would go about it,
0: okay? Well, I think that's helpful for some churches. It sounds like, I mean, I'm not, you're not advocating this, but it sounds like you could even just give a dollar or something and still have a voice or or a minimal amount and not, um, you know, if that was something that a church convictionally thought, okay, right now I don't trust the cooperative program. You know, you got send network talking about the great requirement being part of the gospel, you got the seminaries and so many of them cranking out, uh, ideas that they would, you know, conservatives consider to be abhorrent, um, they can still keep a voice while severely minimizing their giving if they want to do that. Not saying you advocate. Yes. If you were
1: to read article three of the SBC constitution, it's laid out pretty clearly. Um, You know, it's, it'll glaze over the eyes of of most people. I understand that, but, but it's not that complex. Um, If you, if you give X percent Of undesignated receipts from your church, or if you give um, $6,000, you're entitled for each additional percentage point or $6,000, you're entitled to another messenger up to a total of 12. And and the first two are just by being in friendly cooperation, which does not require money at all. So no church has to give money at all. To have two messengers, they merely have to be in friendly cooperation. So, if you have a statement of faith that is basically in line with the Baptist faith and message, and you send a letter to your state convention saying we want to be part of things, then you are, and that's two messengers. If you if you want to give um, you know sixty thousand dollars to Lottie Moon, uh, you've got twelve messengers. Uh, you know, so it's these are not things i would encourage because i think on balance right. our convention institutions are are much more sound than not we have a couple of institutions that are clearly off the rails but but nevertheless in general cp is the right way to do things and and involving yourself in the convention to steward those institutions to make sure they aren't off the rails is the right way to do things. Nevertheless, I know I have a lot of friends who are just like, we can't give to whichever thing. And there is a way, absolutely a way. And it was actually our current executive committee president, Ronnie Floyd, who engineered the constitutional changes that enable exactly that approach. So, it's completely legit. We were sold on it pretty
0: heavily about a decade ago, and there it is. Well, there's a practical consideration um, as well, and I thought of this when, uh, well, it's actually similar to when Trump was first elected, kind of being an outsider, and then where does he find people to fill the positions that agree with his agenda in the various, you know, bureaucratic uh, agencies, etc. And in the SBC, if you got someone in there who was aggressive. They really wanted to drive out social justice stuff and, and all the other things that are plaguing the denomination. Let's say um, I know Russell Fuller had told me the other day, he said, he, and, and maybe this will sound dismal to some, but he said something like, I don't know if I can identify 10 men. I know that would be capable of uh, running the mechanisms involved. I went to Southeastern that uh, you know is known to be one of the biggest social justice schools. And, um, I think about the, the faculty that existed there. Even those who were opposed to the agenda that the administration was pushing were completely silent in, from, from any public view about their views. They were, they were scared. Um, the administration was going woke, is now woke, uh, pretty much. A lot of the professors who were more woke are very emboldened uh, to be that way. and Those who disagreed are, frankly, retiring or looking for the exit door. So in that scenario, let's say you were the one who, who became the next, not saying you will be, but the next SBC president. God help us all. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's a practical consideration. I don't, how do you put the pieces back together? I, I don't know how you even write the ship at that point, but maybe you have some ideas on that.
1: Oh, it's, it's a process. It's not an overnight thing, but it's completely doable. And, and, you know, uh, in the extreme case, so we'll, we'll take an historical case, um, uh, at Southern Seminary, Roy Honeycutt was president and he was clearly just outright egalitarian and and tolerating a nest of professors who were teaching higher criticism and uh, in some cases just didn't believe the Bible at all. And, and were are pretty plain about that. And the horror stories of people who studied there in those days uh, will curl your hair. You just can't believe some of the stuff that came out of that place. And. You know, the first step in an extreme case of that nature was they fired Roy Honeycutt. And, you know, whatever argument one might make about Al Mohler today, and uh, I am not fond of his hiring decisions of late to be sure, but nevertheless, when Al first came in, he did a really thorough job of cleaning house and putting in a lot of conservative people. And they're out there. I mean, my goodness, we're educating thousands and thousands of seminary students every year. And many of them are rock solid. In fact, many of the guys coming through less than stellar uh, seminary environments are rock solid in some cases, because it was less than stellar. They iron sharpens iron. They, they get hit with all this gibberish and nonsense. And they say, this isn't right. This isn't biblical and, and become relate, quite yeah. strong. And and that was, well, yeah, exactly. And, and that was true in the, in the seventies and eighties also. So I, I don't doubt that we have plenty of people to choose from. I think what we frequently lack is what you were just describing the courage of conservative leaders to call a thing what it is and to say, you know, this is wrong and we're against this and we're not afraid of the woke mob. And we I think I I don't doubt that those of us who are engaged in this fight at this time uh, have been thinking about this from the beginning and will continue to do so how do you find the leaders who will stand, who will speak, who will take the actions that are needed? And look, there are a lot of people in these institutions who are absolutely solid. They're just not necessarily courageous in their current employment environment. Some of those people should be in a position of leadership. Some of them probably shouldn't be because they may lack courage. But beyond that, There are 14 million Southern Baptists and probably a decent number who were Southern Baptists until recently to choose from to take roles that really are consequential. And you see that the leaders who came out of the resurgence when things were going very well uh, weren't necessarily household names. I mean, we had Adrian Rogers and we had Charles Stanley, but a lot of these guys weren't known until their courageous actions in the resurgence made them known. And so that's that's a lot of this, too. Mike Stone was not well known anywhere, but he nearly upended the establishment. And, and someday he will. I, I don't know if it'll be next year or some other year. But, you know, I, I have no doubt that Mike Stone will be president of the SBC. I have no doubt Javier Chavez will be president of the SBC someday. And, uh, you know, both of them lost by, like I said, if we flipped about 300 votes, we need as the conservative movement as a whole needs to constantly platform men of courage and conviction so that they can become those leaders we we will rely on someday.
0: Now, I wasn't alive during the resurgence. I guess maybe certain aspects of the tail end of it, but I wouldn't have remembered that. When were you born, John? 1989. Oh my goodness, you're a baby. I was born in 69. So
1: okay. I'm, I'm becoming old. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm becoming that very quickly.
0: Well, my, my dad was born in 58 and he is from a long line of Southern Baptists. And he was the one that actually he left the Southern Baptist Convention during the the kind of liberal drift. Of course, he grew up about a five minute walk from John MacArthur's church. So that's where he uh, went to seminary and became a deacon there and all that. But um. One of the things, I mean, he's told me stories about kind of what happened because he admired Paige Patterson and some of these guys at, at the time, at least the efforts they were making. But one of the things I know he, he said to me, and, and and you would maybe have a fuller view of this since you were more involved, is that there was such a disconnect between the pew and what was being taught at the seminaries that oh, yes. um, I know there was a study that went out at the time, it, it ruffled a lot of feathers, people going through, getting their MDiv and coming out atheist. And this was yeah. a, a big problem. And it seems like the, the situation's a little different today because of the political nature of the social justice movement and also the subversive nature of it, how they, they always you know, claim to be so conservative, even when they're pushing things that are uh, undermining uh, core doctrines, like the revelation of scripture and uh, biblical justice and you know, even the gospel itself. They, they market this in a political fashion that then pastors who don't leave the church and deny these things go and pastor a church. And I've seen churches flip. They become woke. The people in the church buy into the argument because it's so subversive. Where it, and that seems to be different than what happened during the conservative resurgence where there was um, the effort to, lead, um, an eff- to, to take back the convention for orthodoxy was so clear. Today, it's just not clear. I wonder if you could speak to that, what the differences might be, because I think that's one of the things so, some people who live through that, like, like Russell Fuller, think, oh, this is different. I don't know if we can take this one back because of the subversive nature of the argument and how fast it's spreading in the pews themselves.
1: With nothing but respect for Dr. Fuller, um, I don't think it is quite as different as it is remembered. Um, and of course I was a very minor foot soldier at a very young age in the resurgence. So, uh, you know, just to be fair, I, I didn't do a lot, but, but I did some, and I grew up in a town with a Southern Baptist college, uh, well, Arkansas Baptist college and, um, Washtenaw Baptist university, which was filled with Democrats. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the, uh, Chairman of the political science department was uh, the husband of one of the women deacons at First Baptist, and you know, back in the day when that was, you know, crazy talk. And, and so, you know, I, I usually got a lot of that perspective from people who didn't know they shouldn't say those things to me. And, and of course, I, I became friends with Judge Pressler and some of these other guys at a very young age, too. My memory of this is a little different than some people's and certainly of the of the press that the resurgence gets much after the fact. And it's that the so-called moderates almost always presented themselves as conservative. They were the definition of conservative. And of course, they believed in inerrancy. And what do you mean claiming we don't believe in inerrancy and blah, blah, blah? We're just trying to fight off those hyper fundamentalist guys you know because if you're even one inch to the right of them you are a hyper fundamentalist and note it's never never just a fundamentalist no it has to be hyper or ultra or whatever the new york times headline last week was you know southern baptists narrowly avert a an ultra conservative takeover well okay that that's interesting i don't know what that would be
0: but uh this is the thing. It they almost got me excited. Went, you know, you know, I thought, oh, there's an ultra conservative take. I, I didn't know about this one. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh,
1: they have always been chameleons. It has always been, yes, we're doing this new innovative thing that you have never encountered before, but oh, we're conservative. We're not changing. Those guys are. They're moving to the right. No, we're right where we were we're absolutely no different than we were then. And we're no different than you guys were before you adopted some new thing. And, you know, the new thing in back in the day, of course, was higher criticism. Now it's critical theory. Um, the words are, are even almost the same. And, and so, yeah, it was subversive then too. They were always moving left while, covering it with we're just being reasonable and that's exactly what's happening now oh we're just we're just being reasonable we're just acknowledging the systemic racism of this country oh we're just acknowledging these terrible things and we're trying to repent of them well i'm sorry you can't repent of something you didn't do you know the the line at the mlk 50 conference was that was that uh all white people have to repent for the assassination of Martin Luther King. I'm sorry, I'm 51 years old, and I was born after that happened. I am not guilty of Martin Luther King being assassinated. That's ridiculous. My my tiny grandchildren are not responsible for that. That is utterly ludicrous. And when you say that an entire class of people needs to repent for something they did not do and had no part in... One of the problems with that is you cheapen the idea of repentance. You know, repentance is just whatever some, somebody on MSNBC tells you you have to do today. And it has nothing to do with the actual confrontation of the sinfulness in your life, the, the actual depravity of man that must be confronted and laid at the foot of the cross. So, so we, we cheapen it and turn it into this social gospel thing where we are actually going to solve society's problems through taxation or something, anything except the gospel. And you see that same tendency at the gospel coalition, where, as you know, literally everything is now defined as a gospel issue, seemingly except the gospel itself. The gospel reconciles all these people one to another. The gospel makes everyone, everywhere, my brother or my sister, so long as they just bow to our Lord Jesus Christ. And it requires us to love one another, even if they have not bowed at the foot of the cross. So, so it, the gospel is revolutionary and transformative. What they're doing takes us back to a pagan state where we are defined by, ironically, nationality, ethnicity, all of the things they decry. And of course, there's always a reason for that. You know, if you saw my my speech at the Great Awakening Conference, I talked about this a good bit. Uh, This is just a marketing scam. And I'm not saying that Pastor So-and-so now at South Succotash Baptist Church realizes this. But the people who came up with the idea of wokeness. The people who came up with the idea of critical theory generally, in all of its different forms critical race theory, radical feminism, queer theory, post colonialism, all of it, all of those things that's a marketing scam because Americans wouldn't buy class warfare. And so they figured if we could get you to feel guilty about your immutable characteristics and pit you against one another and offer an alleged political solution, and it is always a political solution, then we can control you and we can create the exact same socialist hierarchy that we would have created through a class warfare argument if that had sold in America, but it didn't. So, okay, maybe that works in Russia, maybe that works in China, maybe that works in Campuchia, but it didn't work in Alabama. And it didn't work in New York. So they repackaged. And that's all Frankfurt School Marxism really is. That's what Horkheimer and Marcuse are doing. That's what Gramsci was telling them to do a generation before they did it. And that's what we're now hearing in pulpits. It has to be rooted out. It is absolutely antithetical to the gospel. It is destructive of the church, and it will destroy the church in due time if we don't root it out. So again, you asked at the outset, what's the argument for staying in? The argument for staying in is these institutions are not fully subverted, but they do belong to that widow in the next to last pew. They do belong to Christ, and we should contend for what belongs both to the widow and to the Lord.
0: What's the game plan then for Anaheim, uh, moving forward, this this is geographically, I mean, it's going to be very expensive to get, you know, the, the widow <laughs> son, who is a deacon at the church to be a messenger, to go all the way out there in the church van. How do you win? And, and it, I mean, it's a very practical thing. I think people want to know this last, this last convention that just happened was supposed to be, and maybe you didn't think this, but I, I know I did, uh, it was the, this was going to be the high turnout. This was going to be, after all the craziness of 2020, conservatives are mad at what they're hearing and they're going to come out in force. How do you get that momentum up significantly to then win in a place as difficult to win in as Anaheim?
1: It's the same problem we had anyway. If Mike Stone had won, we would be asking the same question. How do we reelect him? you know, so right. so it's not a problem we hadn't already considered. And, you know, the, the fact of the matter is 1979, which was the first year of the resurgence, that's the year Adrian Rogers won. Um, Adrian had a had a bigger profile, and it was easier for him to win than for Stone to win. But Stone was the right guy. And I love him. And I, I think he's an amazing leader. Um, I think I think if you look back over the statistics, what you'll see is that we had better than normal turnout in 1979, better turnout than that in 80, better turnout than that in 81, and then 82, and then 83, and then 84. And we hit the high watermark in 1985. So it's years into the resurgence. We hit 45,000 messengers in 1985. Uh, At the Dallas convention, and and you know that convention, because that's the one where W.A. Criswell preached that amazing sermon, whether we live or die, which I just rewatched with my staff two days ago. John, they came away from that. And I've shown that to them before, but they came away from that. My goodness, that could have been preached yesterday about Nashville. And yes, it absolutely could have. The only words you have to change are higher criticism out for critical race theory and the sermon's identical. You need to go back and rewatch it. It's amazing. Yeah, all you people I need to yeah. watch that sermon. Um, W.A. Criswell, whether we live or die. Uh, but it took years to get to that 45,000, which, by the way, is the largest deliberative body in the history of mankind. It's unbelievable. That took years. And we won all along the way, but they kept bringing more. We kept bringing more. It's the same pattern, and I don't think Anaheim is insurmountable. I think Anaheim, uh, first of all, I think there are a lot more conservatives in in Baptist churches in California, Nevada, and Arizona than people realize who are in driving distance, And, and so there's that. But also, there are an awful lot of Southern Baptists who fly to convention nearly every year. That's not, that's not shocking. The other team will definitely be there in, in some degree of force, but they will have the same logistical problem that we do. There is an upper limit on what they can do, and I'm sure there is on us, but I don't think we found it yet. So we're going to organize like crazy. And I think that we're going to have a really good year. And again, if we don't, we'll come back in Charlotte. Oh, by the way, if we do, we'll also come back in Charlotte. I will
0: stand up and take as many punches in the face as it takes to win. I'm not going to stop. I respect that immensely. Um, One of the things that... I've, I've wondered if it's possible, and you probably already considered it. Is, is there a way for churches, maybe churches who aren't even in the convention, but are in general sympathy with Conservative Baptist Network? Is, is there a plan going forward to um, kind, of, kind of go around some of the SBC uh, compromised establishments, kind of like the Freedom Center at Liberty University is kind of outpacing the ERLC right now. You know what I <laughs> Which mentioned.
1: isn't hard, but yes, <laughs> Ryan Helpenbein at Freedom Center is doing a, an amazing job. And as you know, Ryan is a member of our steering council at CBN.
0: That's right, yeah. Um, so th- that's happening there, that you already see these kind of organic things bubbling up. Is, is there a way for CBN to say, okay, look, we want to take back the Southern Baptist Convention for Orthodoxy, but at the same time, we recognized uh, there's a big cultural battle going on here. It's not just the SBC, and we will, uh, I don't know, have, I don't know if you want to talk about missionaries, but at least host conferences or do do things that people that aren't Southern Baptists can participate in to kind of be that shadow government almost. I, I hate to use that word, but I, I hope you understand what I'm getting at. So, something that, a mechanism that's in place even if after five years, some of the concerns that people like myself have are realized and doesn't go the way you're saying, CBN's still there and, and, and it can do something. It, it, is there any thought about doing that?
1: Oh, well, we're going to have a bunch of events over the next year. We're, we're in early planning stages on a number of things that I think you're really going to like. And, uh, This first year was really tough. First of all, we started from zero and immediately got hit by the pandemic. So fundraising plans for some things that I had pushed pretty hard for kind of went completely awry very early in the process. And we still had, you know, 25 year record setting turnout at the convention and nearly won everything. And by the way, we won more than we lost. Uh, We got, we got someone I fought very hard for on to the credentials committee, which matters. Um, there are five convention offices, uh, two of those we didn't endorse in, but the guy that we wanted one, uh, three of those we, uh, we endorsed in. And one of those one, um, we passed the strongest pro uh, strongest anti-abortion pro abolition resolution in the history of the SBC. Um, I think that abortion is increasingly going to be an issue in the SBC because again, the ERLC stood up and opposed that resolution, even after we amended it to meet their complaint, you know, they said well. This resolution is a little too strong because it prohibits, you know, things like sonogram laws or banning partial birth abortion or whatever. And I see the value in all those things. Those are, first of all, if a woman sees a sonogram, the odds of her actually aborting her child go to nearly zero. So, of course, that matters. Of course, if Texas can pass a law that bans abortion after the 12th week, it's not what I want, but it's a heck of a lot better than what I have. You know, these are good things, but I actually want to abolish it. It's actually evil and wrong. And I would go further. I would contend with my friends Ted Cruz and Mike Huckabee and Newt Gingrich that the Constitution already bans abortion in the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which prohibits the taking of life without due process of law. What due process does an infant get? So, so if we just understand that life begins at conception, which is scientifically obvious, I mean, everybody tells us to follow the science. Well, follow the science on life. This is not complex. You had a choice going into this. You don't need a choice to murder someone who's inconvenient. I mean, my goodness, by that logic, if I become inconvenient, you could just kill me, John. And and no problem, no recourse. What is the difference between me? And, oh, and, and by the way, viability. Well, put me in a forest for two weeks, and I'm not very viable either. You know, this is these arguments are just they're inhuman. They are yeah. wicked and they are all aimed at confusing people. Who haven't thought through just how terrible they really are. So of course, Southern Baptists should be for abolishing abortion, just as they should have been for abolishing slavery. And I tweeted a couple of times to massive opposition that, you know, these guys claim that they would have had the courage to be for abolitionism back in the 1840s. They don't even have the courage to be for abolishing the slaughter of infants. So, you know, their their moral authority here is just gone. And and if they think that we're going to just pretend we didn't notice, they're very mistaken. They have adopted the Democrat platform more or less whole because they have shifted their focus to things that are that are perhaps less Trumpian the, the fact that that pro-life is a Trumpian thing to some of them just floors me but you know they have they have become so adamant in their Trump hate in some cases that they have literally thrown out a few million babies with the bathwater, and we are not going to let up on that Donald Trump might die today but a million babies will die this year and we're going to fight for them so that the next million doesn't
0: yeah it's i thought that was an amazing moment when i i saw the opposition to that because there's a statement on against racism in some form some way just about every year um but when that came up it was well you know we already have a statement on abortion we don't need the you so, have like, just, wait a minute like you can't do that You have hit the most remarkable thing I can remember
1: hearing in my entire life as a Southern Baptist. For James Merritt, former president of the convention, this year's uh, chairman of the resolutions committee, to stand up and tell us that the committee declined a resolution on abortion because, as you just said, our position on abortion is clear. The convention has spoken to it many times. We don't need to speak to that again. While we're actually asked to adopt another statement on racism, slavery, et cetera, which we've been talking about pretty much every year since 1995. Well, I don't mind if we condemn slavery for the next hundred years straight, that's fine by me, but we're not going to address an immediate moral and humanitarian crisis at the same time. Slavery ended in this country, oh, not just before I was born, I mean, we're talking about more than a century and a half ago. Now, if they wanted to condemn human trafficking, that would be current. If they wanted to condemn the race-based slavery in Muslim countries, where right this minute, there are twice as many Black slaves as there were in 1865 in, in the world. I mean, but we don't pass those resolutions. We pass resolutions about something that ended more than a century and a half ago, And are told we don't need to speak to a moral crisis that exists today, whether again, you know, slavery in Mauritania and Libya, there are open air slave markets in Libya, you did not hear our resolutions committee care, you there are babies being murdered as James Merritt is speaking, but we don't need to speak to that. There is truly a moral crisis in the senior leadership of the SBC, and it must be addressed. And that's
0: why we keep going. Well, Trevor Loudon, a uh, communist uh, kind of expert, uh, has said that the issue is never the issue. The issue is always the revolution. It's always about yes. how do you progress the ball towards uh, some kind of egalitarian utopia, I guess, ideal, even though they'll probably say that that's not what they're doing. Um, when you hear you know, appeals to Revelation 7 and that we, we're a Revelation 7 seminary or whatever, that, that's kind of what I see them doing. That's something Jesus does. And they're saying that they can, through some diversity measure, make that happen here on this earth at their seminary or church. Um, I was exploring last night kind of the different, you know, Peter Jones, one ism, two ism. Mm -hmm. Uh, familiar with that but he takes romans one and he looks at okay you know there's really two religions there's there's two ism christianity and then there's one ism you reduce everything down to one thing and and the people in the sbc that are running the show it seems like to me are part of a different religion just like machin uh talked about you know the liberals of his day progressives being um of a different religion they're really not christians that's what i see these people as i mean and it sounds like you're on the same page with me on that that Um, they are looking at reality in a fundamentally different way. They're reducing everything down to, I don't know, some abstract equity or inclusion, diversity, something like that. And everything's got to be pushed through this to evaluate whether it's worthy or not worthy or valuable or not valuable. And that's just not this, the the scriptures that we have, they're not compatible with that. It just, it will destroy the scripture if you apply that metric to our, uh, the teaching of God's word. So the thing is, I see it, you see it. How do you get a bunch of Southern Baptist people? I mean, is there a plan to get the, the people in the pews, get the, the pitchforks and the fire, you know, it's figurative, of course, but them to see it in the same way, to realize their denominational leadership, th- these aren't people advocating Christianity at this point, at least not in any effective way. And they need to be rooted out. I, I mean, if you can tap into that. I just don't know how it happens. I thought this year would have been the year. So is there any plan, like a, something we don't know about yet that's being worked on, or, or, or is it just keep doing what you're doing and, and pray the Lord you know, opens eyes?
1: Well, this year almost was the year. And like I said, we won more than we lost. That wouldn't have happened, obviously, if we hadn't shown up in mass. So, so we are much further down the road than I think anybody would have predicted a year ago for starters. Second, I I do want to stress that there are vastly more godly people in denominational leadership in the SBC than not. I can't stress that enough. But the other team very clearly is multiplying itself. It reproduces very quickly. And it, you know, through hiring, through appointments, through firing some good people, And, uh, and we know several, and, you know, this is not something you can just let go forever. Now, at the same time, I want to stress it had been going for a heck of a long time in 1979. The SBC was much further gone in 1979 when the resurgence began than it is today. So, so I'm not saying you, you lose hope even if they make some more progress because again, the point at which we really lose this is where the conservative churches just bow out and give it to them. And I'm just not willing to just hand them the keys to the car. We're, we're going to fight for those keys. And it's not a power thing. You know, I don't have any ambition to be the president of anything, maybe president of the United States someday, but not president of the SBC. I don't have any I don't have any ambition here. I'm a layman. I'm trying to recruit more and more laymen because honestly, when the laymen stand up, this problem gets solved. And that was true in the 80s too. It's not that we don't need the preachers, but the lay people see it very clearly and not simply in the sense of simplistically, but simply in the sense of, I had someone argue to me the other day that we should put a certain pastor on the credentials committee because he would understand the theological nuance of the woman pastor issue at Saddleback Church. And it occurred to me as I was listening to this argument that what I need is someone who will not see the theological nuance of that and will instead see that there's an argument in 1 Timothy 2 from creation order and that it's actually totally simple. It's completely straightforward. So again, lay people are key to this. And there is a plan. The the plan is to organize. The plan is to reach the Baptist in the pew to educate him or her about the exact same revolution that is being attempted in the country as a whole. And not just this country, not just the SBC, not just the PCA, not just all these other denominations, not just the church period, not just our schools, not just our colleges, not just our government, but other countries and other governments. This is a global assault by the left on Western civilization itself. And I stress that when we say Western civilization, we're borrowing too much from the Enlightenment humanists. We used to have a word for this, it was called Christendom. We are fighting for the soul of Christendom. And honestly, John, I have to say, I am honored that God would allow our generation to get to stand in such a fight, win or lose. The fact that he would trust us with this moment is an honor and it's glorious and, and I don't expect to benefit at all from it, but I do hope to please my
0: master. Oh, amen. Amen to that. Practical things. Last real question here. Uh, what can we expect or, and, and I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, is there going to be a big fund created to let you, let's get these conservative messengers to Anaheim that wasn't in place last time. Uh, you said you want to communicate with the people in the pews. Is there going to be like a, the starting of a newsletter or a, uh, a training center? Or these are the kind of practical things I was asking about. Like, wh- what can you, we expect going forward uh, to, to try to uh, achieve the, these objectives?
1: We're discussing all of those things and more. I don't know how practical the messenger fund will prove to be, but I think it's a great idea. And you saw Tom Buck doing that on a small scale. Yep. Uh, In the weeks leading up, I think that's a really good idea, because like you say, there are an extraordinary number of people who would go if they could just afford it. Um, I know Mike Stone and Randy Adams were both for. I'm not sure if they were the same version or slightly different versions of remote voting. That's obviously not going to happen this year. Um, But there are some interesting aspects of that. I think the ballot security issues on that are a little disconcerting. And, And I also think it's much better if people can actually get to one place and meet each other and meet their leaders and so forth. And I think you lose that with remote locations. But still, I think that's an idea that's likely to be coming. Um in the near future, which would help with the financial side. And it would also increase the number of just normal Baptists who, who could participate directly. But in the near future, yes, there will be much more internet effort, there will be much more direct organizing on the ground. Uh, without lockdowns, this gets a lot easier. And um, and so all of the things you said, and many more are coming. And the biggest thing is just not quitting. I mean, honestly. We just have to stand. The other team will. The question is, will we have the courage to do likewise? They are fighting from a minority position. They, and I don't mean a racial minority. I mean an ideological minority. They do not represent the Baptist in the pew. We absolutely do. And so, you know, if if we're going to let a handful of self-proclaimed elites dominate 14 million Southern Baptists. Well, that's not something I want to be a part of. I want to speak up for the little guy. I'm just a poor kid from Arkansas. I've done well in life, but, but that's because we live in a wonderful country that is based on Christian beliefs that allows for people to rise if they, if they work hard and they put in the effort. We went from zero to 25 million users at PayPal in two and one half years. I assure you that was a much larger organizing effort than anything we will be able to do or try to do in the SBC. And, you know, it is not impossible. It is not even impractical. It's merely reaching enough people and helping them understand the importance of holding precious what the Lord has given us to steward for this brief moment.
0: Hmm. Well, Rod, you you are uh, someone that uh, I respect, you're someone to be commended. And I, I will say a true Southerner as well with your optimism, that's <laughs> a uh, Southern trait um, I've learned. So, um, well, thank you for for lending us your time and, and just giving us your thoughts on this. I know you're a busy guy, but I think it's it's good to hear. And I did want people to hear uh, your side of it because I know you're um, very active in promoting uh, people staying in the convention and trying to, uh, to keep pushing um, for the truth. And uh, it was much different than um, my eight reasons to leave the SBC video I, I put out a few days ago. And I, I want people to hear your, your side of it, your perspective. You. And so um, I appreciate you giving it to us. Thank you.
1: Well, I'm very grateful for you,
0: John. Keep fighting. All right. God bless you. Have a good one. You too.